0: So about 10 years ago, I was in San Bernardino, California, up in the mountains. I was at a place that was quite familiar to me. I had been there many times. It was a very special place. God had actually met me there many, many times. So I decided I wanted to get up and just milk this moment I had in the mountains. And so it was early, early in the morning, and uh, I grabbed my cup of coffee. Uh, it's summertime, I'm in flip-flops, and I just go... Walking out into the woods. And as I'm walking, communing with God, <laughs> out of the bushes comes a bear. And it's about from me here to about here. And it surprised me. And worse, I surprised him. Anyone? Ever encountered a bear without a gun in your hand? Without a gun in your hand? Okay, okay. Now, what do we know about humanity in a moment like that? Right, there is a survivalistic instinct. We've known this um, for over a century now, and and we have options in a moment like this. Uh, The first one, some of you said it, is we fight. Can you all see that? You see that all? Okay. All right. The, the second one is, and you said it, we run. The third one is, anyone want to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's freeze. That's where you're paralyzed by fear. Or there's play dead. That's, that's the opossum rule. It's you feign. There's your four Fs, right? What did I do in this moment? Now, do you know what you're supposed to do when you encounter a bear? Yes, you're supposed to get big. And uh, if you're running the sound here, you might want to lower the bottom because you're supposed to go, you're supposed to look crazy, like you're the one with rabies. (laughs) That's your best shot at survival. Here's what I did. I don't know if I can do this. Can we bring the stage lights up just a little bit up up here? Uh, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do that. Hold on. Bear there, me here, cup of coffee, flip-flops. Can you see me okay? And I'm just having my moment. See the bear. (laughs) And then I get about 10 feet away, and I finally have the courage to just look. And apparently I scared the hell out of that bear because it went the other way. It was awesome. It looked at me. And the, it, was, it was an amazing moment of, of, of God's creation because that bear just went bounding back down. And, you know, when we walk through the woods, we work our, our way around things. It just went, cluck, boom. And I just saw, like, bushes and trees go, bah, 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 bah. And, and, then my, and then that's when I got in touch with my heart, just <laughs> coffee spilling everywhere, right? So I chose uh, one of these uh, options, which was, um, what would you call it? Yeah, it was kind of like, it was kind of like flight and feign. I was trying to act cool. I'm like, oh, hey, Bear. I'm just going to go this way, right? Now, what anthropologists and others studying humanity have told us for such a long time is that this is the deepest part of who we are as human beings. That if you just peel us all back down to our layers of onions, like, this is the core of who we are. Which I just want to say, like, this is true about us, we need a survivalistic instinct, but to say that's the very core of who we are, that's pretty despairing. I mean, it fuels uh, existential philosophy, it ultimately leads to despairing nihilism, where we're like, why do we care about anything? And we, we even heard that a little bit in the drama this morning. If this is all we are, just people out to survive in a dangerous world. And that's why Dr. Stephen Porges, in 1994, not a believer, as far as I know, but a researcher and a scientist, and he began to look at something deeper in our parasympathetic nervous system. And what his research, which now has been widely accepted, has discovered is that there's something deeper to you and me in our humanity. This isn't some subset of... Christianity science or anything like that, this, this is mainstream stuff, and what they are finding is that there's a fifth F, and they're not using that language, but I will. It's called the polyvagal theory, and it essentially says before there was survival instinct, there was deep desire for relationship, and it happens even in the womb. That you and me at our core, our deepest hunger and desire, even before we come out of the womb, is for connection, is for relationship, is for a friend. And it's not until we're conditioned to live our lives and our relationships because of the brokenness, because of the pain, because of the, of the suffering, because of all the things we experience, it's not until that happens that we begin just to think this is all there is and to live from fight, flight, freeze, or faint. Now, this makes so much sense according to all the other research that we now know about you and about me. And in uh, 2014, University of Chicago, landmark research which found this, that if you have meaningful relationships, if you are deeply connected, you'll live, on average, 15 years longer than someone who does not. Isn't that crazy? You'll be less sick, you'll be happier, you'll work better and faster. Research goes on to say that you, you'll uh, be less at risk for stroke, heart disease, dementia. And if we flip it around, what does it look like for you and I to not be in relationship? Well, the research shows that it is on par with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And of course, how do we punish people if we really want to punish them? When there are children, we say, "Go to your what? Go to your room. We're done with you." And when it is at a um, when it is at a prison-like level, we put people in solitary what confinement as the worst form of punishment. There's something so much deeper to you, to me, into the space in between you and me. And I think this makes so much sense when we... When we take in this research to your and my day-to-day world and life, I mean, I'm watching this, this drama, and on one level, it's, it's heady about, uh, you know, the apologetics or the defense for why do you believe or, or not believe and, and all of those things, and I'm sitting there going, how is this really tied to relationships? But then the next thing I know, I'm crying, and I'm sitting there going, Dan, this is just a church drama. This is just a church drama. Pull yourself together. But I'm a dad with three daughters. And last night I had time with just one of my daughters, and we made pizza together and we did a puzzle, well she did a puzzle, I, I, I didn't even find one piece. And then before I went to bed I prayed for her, and uh, this is my non-affectionate daughter, but I held her hand, I prayed for her, I said in, and she didn't let go. I gotta tell you, my heart was so full. I was on cloud nine. Why? Is that just a biological outcome of chance, or is there intent? Is there a design? Is there something about our God that speaks to why it's so beautiful when it's beautiful and so painful when it goes wrong, when it goes wrong? And we know that experience, as well, don't we? And we know that actually, because of all of this, our deep desire for relationship and all of our survivalistic instincts—the way that we go about our relationships, whether it's with coworkers, spouses, dating relationships—is basically like, "Love me, serve me. I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship. Would you please? And don't get too close." <laughs> right? I mean, we're just total mixed bag. This was my dating life for the first 29 years. It's like, come on, come on, hate. Uh, not commitment, I'm not into that, right? But <laughs> this is how we do it because relationship intimacy is freaky. It's so powerful, it's so beautiful. And we mess it up all of the time. It also, all of this, all the research, all of your experience speaks to the scriptures. Speaks to when God spoke all of creation into existence. He steps back from it and he goes, good, good, very good, 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 but one not good. And it's right here in Genesis chapter 2, where he he gives this kind of assessment of humanity. He says, then God said, uh, well, let's see, Where, where am I? Two, okay. The Lord God said, it is not good For the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. We look at this oftentimes as uh, something for a wedding ceremony, right? We think this is just about dating and marriage. No, no, this is about humanity. It is not good for humans to be alone, to be in solitary confinement, to be outside of relationship. And I started thinking about that. And I started thinking, "How how could I put... All of this into a relation, into an equation of nature, of some sort. And I came up with this. It is not good for a man or a woman to be alone. And God seems to be saying, in all of my creation, There's one thing that there needs to be something more, that it's not good for a man not to have relationship, belonging, connection, and that there's an incompleteness. This is amazing. This is before, if you've studied the Bible, and if you know this little part in Genesis, sin's going to come later. This is before sin even happens. God stepped back and He goes, Mmm, finishing touch. I need to add a finishing touch here to this, this majestic, beautiful creation. There needs to be community. There needs to be relationship. It's not good for man to be alone. One plus zero does not equal or is less than one. And then I started thinking, well, I think there's all sorts of different relationships that we could use a, a, a little math here. And I'm not a math guy. Like Sean was saying, I, I married a, a, a basically a math major. My mom was a math teacher. My brother's a math teacher. Um, my adoptive daughter is a math genius Notice that we don't share the same bloodline. <laughs> and, um, and yet I started thinking, well, I started actually looking at Blaise Pascal, the mathematician philosopher, and he, he talks about this. He's, uh, look with me here. I'll just put this up on the screen. Here's what he says about the fact that there's different types of people when it comes to math. To speak freely of mathematics, I find it the highest exercise of the spirit but at the same time, I know that it's so useless. (laughs) Great quote. How many of you, math, highest exercise of the spirit. It's the most amazing thing. How many of you are math folk? Just raise your hand. Be proud. Just rock it. Not seeing many. Online, go ahead and post it in the chat, right? How many of you just go, it's useless. Why why do we even have math? Go ahead, raise your hand. A lot lot more proud, right? Well, uh, Pascal, goes a little bit further. Here's here's what he continues to say and write. Let's look at this. There are two types of minds, so he's talking about us here. Uh, The mathematical mind, and what might be called the intuitive. The former arrives at its views slowly, but they are firm and rigid. And he goes... The latter, this is the non-math types, right? The latter is endowed with greater flexibility and applies itself simultaneously to the diverse lovable parts of that which it loves. In other words, there are math folk and there are love folk. And Pascal is saying neither shall the two really ever work out together. It's like oil and water bringing these two types of people. But here's the problem. The problem is is that math folk and love folk, they get married, you see. or their siblings, or their coworkers, or one's a parent. How many of you, I just, wanna, I just wanna pick on those who are married, how many of you would say one of you is a math folk and the other of you is a love folk? Raise your hand. <laughs> this, people, is why we are doing the series called Love Math. We are bringing it together, we're doing this thing. Not because it's good math, it's love math, it's very different, and if you are a math folk, and you might kind of align with the more rigid way of thinking, this is going to really frustrate you. <laughs> this is not good math, and, and you're going to write Roy emails. <laughs> but it is so essential. In fact, let's, let's just break down a, a, a few more of these babies. Maybe you've seen some of them. But uh, we know that in a marriage, one plus one, according to the Scriptures, equals One, this beautiful, mysterious union, we're going to talk about that next week. We also know that for those who are single, made in the image of God, one plus zero, I know it looks similar here, but we're just talking about singlehood, one plus zero equals what? One, right. You're made in the image of God, and there's actually no difference between this one and your one. Who else was single? Jesus, right? You want to take him on? So why is it that mom, dad, why is it that the church, why is it that our culture says, oh, you can't be a one, you're one half. And you're just sitting around waiting for your real life to begin, as it says in one song. And what happens if you believe that lie, if you're single? If you don't believe that you're a whole, whole indivisible one? Then you start to date. And you enter into a relationship, not as a one, but as a one half And it's probably you're going to be attracted to what? Joe. From the drama. Did you get that part? Joe. He's the the one. Okay. Bringing it all together. One half plus one half. When two people who don't have a clear sense of their identity and uh, struggle with all sorts of dysfunction in their own lives, when they come together, what does that equal? I don't know, I'm just going to say one-eighth. I don't know the math on that, but it's not good. It gets toxic. Shall we go on? This is so fun. All right. Stuff that's not in the series, right? But just more love math for you. Uh, what do you think this is? One plus one plus one is greater than three. Anybody? This is Friendship. So in a few days, I'm flying out to California for my annual kind of guy's retreat with my best friends from college. Can't wait to be with them. One of my friends has lost his 45-year-old brother unexpectedly. We're going to sit. We're going to grieve. We're going to play. And we're going to experience that me plus another guy plus another guy somehow synergistically is greater than three. Let me give you one more. This is jumping the shark. This is way, way beyond... Uh, I don't even know if you're going to like it, all right. Can you see down here? We all good? If I do that? Okay. I always got to think about this one. Mm, Hold on. Math's tricky, man. you got to really apply yourself with such discipline. OK, what do you think that is? <laughs> this is a total passion of mine. OK, little i, one of you, one of you, little i, equals dominant i, two little u's. Notice the u's. Are not facing each other. Come on, does anybody want to just guess? I should have brought, brought, like, candy to throw if you got this right or something. All right, this is the equation for technology. You got your little iPhone here, and you're just doing this, and the other person that's supposed to be your most important relationship, and you're just doing this. Go to a restaurant, it's all you'll see. People out to connect doing, doing this. And the next thing we know, we are losing our humanity. And losing our relationship for all of its good. I don't know. Did we jump the shark on that or does that speak to you? Do these relationships speak to you? Do you find yourself in them? Let me give you one more just because I think it's important. Uh, That's conflict. Who's going to turn to one another, own their stuff? All of these relationships come from one key relationship. It's kind of like the unified theory that Einstein's been looking for, the grand theory. There's one relationship that will speak to the power of this, to the beauty of that to the uh, indivisible power of being one. There's one relationship and equation that's going to speak to why it hurts so much and why we live in so much pain and why there's so much conflict. And we're going to find it right here in the very nature of of who God is. In fact, fact, we we see it right in verse 1 of Genesis. The very first words out of the Bible, we see this little hint of it. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for God is fascinating. Here's why it's fascinating. Because we receive, like, like branches from the root, we receive our story as being Jesus followers from the Jewish people. The Jewish people were monotheistic, which means they believed in one God. And they were surrounded by cultures that believed in many gods. That's called Polytheistic. And so the the heralding cry of believing in the one living God is that there's only one. And so when Moses encounters uh, God through a burning bush and he says, well, who are you? God says, I am who I am, who I am, who I am, who I am. Like one God, just one. This is not the Avengers. (laughs) This is not the pantheon. One God. Okay? So that's That's firm, that's tight, you can't play with that. But what, when we look at in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you get into the Hebrew, that word for God is Elohim. Guess what it is? It's plural. What? Let's keep moving. We can just go a little further as we learn a little bit more about us. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, Elohim, plural. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God, Elohim, created mankind in His image. Wait a minute, it was was us. Why not there? This is all very confusing. In the image of God, He created them. What's with the our, the us, the he, the him? What's happening here? Right? We, We move on to Deuteronomy, to one of the just signature passages of all. This is what set everyone as a Jewish community apart from their surrounding cultures. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One, 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 one. And yet, God, that word is Elohim plural. Is this sloppy? Or is there something being revealed here about who God is? Well, what might feel like a breadcrumb here in the Old Testament? If we go to the New Testament, the, the second part of the whole book here, we're going to find a superhighway of revelation. And the first place we'll see it, and I'll just describe it, is when Jesus goes to get baptized. The, the, the sky opens. Jesus, as the sun is in the water, it says, That the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends down, and the voice of the Father says to Jesus, You are my Son, whom I love, in you I am well pleased. The voice of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the water. Hmm. The very last words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 28. This is, this is, this is, this to me, like, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, notice that's singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name. If he was talking about three different people, you know, if he was talking about Thor and Loki, and who, let's just throw out a third. Come on, Avenger fans. Stay with me. (laughs) Who? Who? Iron Man, thank you. If he were talking about them, it would be in the names of Thor, Loki, and Iron Man, right? Just to get it grammatically correct. But it says in the name. That's singular. Then goes on to describe three persons, father, son, and holy spirit. We move on. It's it's not like it's just starts with Jesus and stops there. The early church And writers picked this up. Ephesians chapter 4. This will be my last one, though there could be more if we had time for it. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4.4, there is one body, that's us as a church, and there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. So this making any sense yet to you? Well, let, let's try another visual. Math comes in many different forms. It's what reversible whiteboards are for. So, we have God, and what we're beginning to see is this picture that God is Father, that God is the Son, that God is the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Is this helping at all? Now, in your, in your reading, we, we uh, offer um, Bible verses to kind of track through the week, five of them. One of them's going to be from John chapter 14. And I really want you to live there. There's like, I offered you like 22 verses. Because as much as I'm showing you a little bit of the theology uh, of all this, here's what we see more than anything else. We see the relationship between Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see as you dig into those scriptures is you're going to see that while the Father is not the Son, etc., you're going to see that the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves the Father. And the Father serves. The Son and the Son serves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit serves the Father. That somehow, in this beautiful picture that began to develop, and it was a couple of centuries later, you, you won't see this word anywhere in, in the Bible. It comes about 250 years later by, a, by an early church dude named Tertullian, and he, he, he coined it from the Latin. From Trinitas, he coined this word Trinity, which means one God, three persons. Now, what we're beginning to see here is this beautiful affection within the one triune God, mutuality, even a sense of dependence in all the healthy kind of ways. Now, is it still confusing what I've done here? Just a little bit? Is it helping? Are we helping at all? maybe well in the words of my friend dr dominic scalise he says if you think god's relationship with himself is confusing confusing welcome to relationships <laughs> all right here's the point i want you to get i want you to get that at the very core of who god is is relationship i want you to get the equation by which everything else flows, that Father plus Son plus Holy Spirit equals one, one. Not two, not three, not a half, but one. And it's from the oneness, the unity, one body, one baptism, one faith, as, as Paul writes. It's from all of this that flows the beauty of relationship and the pain of when it's so broken for you and for me. And if you're curious about this, if you want to read more, the best book I've ever read on the Trinity, which is the most accessible book, maybe instead of saying the best book I've ever read, it's the only one I understood. Here's what his name is, Daryl Johnson, and he says this, the living God is not a solitary God. The living God is not an isolated God. From all eternity, the living God has lived in relationship. Indeed, he has lived as relationship. At the center of the universe is relationship. From all eternity, the living God has been community, family. From all eternity, the living God has been infinitely pleased as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Tertullian would say, God is one, but God is not alone. And then one author I appreciate, don't always agree with, his name is Richard Rohr. Here's what he says about actually all creation. Remember when the Apostle Paul says, like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in all, through all? And even the drama touched in on some of like evolutionary biology and all this stuff. Look at this reflection. This is powerful. The energy in the universe is not in the planets or in the protons or neutrons, but in the relationship between them. Not in the particles, but in the space between them. Not in the cells of organisms, but in the way the cells feed and give feedback to one another. Did someone uh, someone else also say, well, gravity's like this. Even gravitational pull is like this. Not in any precise definition of the three persons of the trinity as much as in the relationship between the three. This is where all the power for infinite renewal is at work. That's cool. And it means something about the space in between for you and for me. It informs why solitary confinement is so hard or when from our daughter that we adopted who has an abandonment wound, we tried sending her to her room. And we said, never again. For another child, it might work. It didn't for her. Why? Because of everything we've been talking about. Why do you live, on average, 15 years longer? Why is when you don't have it, it's like 16 cigarettes a day? Well, it's because, according to Dr. Stephen Porges, according to the scriptures, according to the very heart of God who at his very core is relationship, from his deep heart overflows into creation, into you and I, this deep, deep hunger for a friend and for a relationship. And I simply want to just ask you here in this moment. I want you to spend the week reflecting on your relationships, your fears in relationship, the pain of relationship. I'll give you one more. I think it needs to be named. One more relationship. Many among us have suffered divorce. When one person is in and all in in the relationship, and another one is out, it turns your whole world upside down. And you know that pain too. You know the pain when someone has turned their back to you. You know the joy of when your daughter won't let go of your hand. And all I want you to do this week as we prepare, step more into really bad math is I want you to connect those feelings, those thoughts to the deep heart of your Father in heaven. To the deep heart of who God is. When you feel the pain, I want you to hear him say, this is not what I want for you. I want for you wholeness and goodness. When you feel the joy, I want you to feel the joy of the Father and the joy of heaven overflowing into you. My youngest daughter is a relational magnet. She's insatiable. She can't get off of social media. She, well, we, we make her, but everything about her world evolves around relationships, She's only 13, she's not allowed to date, but she's somehow finagled her way into not dating but into having a thing. <laughs> and I'm hard pressed to know the difference. <laughs> but every day there's drama. I love this about her, it's, uh, it's exhausting too. My hope and heart for my daughter. I mean, she's wired up to live from this. She's wired up for it. She's predisposed to the goodness of heaven because she loves relationships so much if she chooses that relationship which comes from the deep heart of God. That's my prayer for her. That's my prayer for you. That's my challenge for all of us. Every time you experience a relational pain and joy, will you connect it to what we know to be true in God as Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit who is one but who is not alone. So let me pray for you. Lord Jesus Holy Spirit, deep heart of you Father in heaven. This changes everything God about who you are, about why you care about what you birthed in each and every single one of us since before the foundations of the world began, that when you wired us up and dreamt us up, you did so. Because you want us to experience flourishing in our relationships with others and also with you. So God, we turn to you in this moment. And we want to live from that overflow of your deep heart. And it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.